morning. Now, I'm going to speak to you again this morning from the series that we've started about the seven letters to his bride. But I just want to think for a second, when, when I was given the verses, I thought to myself, hmm, well, Revelation's often considered to be one of the more difficult books, if not the most difficult book in the Bible to interpret. Maybe that's because it's very apocalyptic in its language. By apocalyptic, we mean to reveal something that's hidden. If you think for a minute, it's kind of like you're looking in through the curtains on what's on the inside. And it uses a lot of symbolic imagery to install hope in the ultimate triumph of God. But one of the things I've noticed when going through Revelation that there seems to be themes that follow through chapter by chapter that help us to understand the book and that underline the structure of the book. And I've come up with these five themes. Number one, God's sovereignty. We see throughout the book of Revelation how God is in control and ultimately he is the supreme authority of history. Or as I like to call it, his story. There's also a theme that runs through that teaches us something about the return of Christ. We know he's coming again to rule. It talks about the faithfulness of us as his people. We are to remain in Christ as his chosen people. And there's a lot about judgment. Each and every one of us here is going to face one day the judgment of Christ. And finally, there is hope. And as Christians, we have hope in a risen and living Christ. Our passage for today is from Revelation 2. And we're going to see some of these five themes coming out. However, I don't want to go through five themes because I feel drawn to two of them. I feel drawn to the theme of God's sovereignty and hope. And I want to explore how the sovereignty of God offers us hope as we go through our passage this morning. So if you'd like to turn with me to Revelation 2, we're going to start, the words will come up on the screen. We're going to start at verse 8, reading through to verse 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. 
Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, if you permit me for a moment, I'd just like to start with a little bit of background information about Smyrna. When looking at this passage and when reading through, I was surprised somewhat to find out that Smyrna is actually the only one of the original seven cities still in existence today. Although today, its modern name is Izmir. And according to our friends at Wikipedia, Izmir is the third most populated city in modern-day Turkey. It has an estimated 4.3 million inhabitants. So quite a large city. Back when it was Smyrna, back at the time of the letter, the city itself is probably 25, 30 miles away to the north of Ephesus. And you can probably see from the map here, to the left-hand side is the Aegean Sea. So it's an excellent source of trade and an excellent place for a trade route because it's very local and it's very close to the sea. It is, as a city itself, it was full of wealth and it was full of prosperity. And it's quite important for what we're going to find out in a moment to realise that actually many people that lived there would have considered it to be the first city of Asia and the most important. It had long been a very pro-Roman city and suggestion is that it supported Rome even before the rise of the Roman Empire and as such was a city full of emperor worship. Just for an example, in 26 BC, they built a huge temple just to honour the Roman emperor Tiberius. So that's the city, but what about the church? Well, I think it would be fair when we consider the makeup of the people that lived in Smyrna were both Jewish and non-Jewish people. They made up the city. So I, I think it would probably be fair, what we would consider today a multicultural church would have been true of Smyrna and the congregation there. But the church was struggling with two forces hitting it from an external point. The first one was the Jewish population that was strongly opposed to Christianity. And the second was the non-Jewish population that was extremely loyal and pro-Rome, known for emperor worship. So is there any wonder when we read our passage that verse 9 talks about persecution? Because you have two external forces coming right at the church. You'd almost be forgiven for thinking that it's kind of expected when you think about the conditions the church is in. So that little bit of background about Smyrna hopefully will help us unpick a bit more from this passage today 
But what does the letter have to say to the church? And indeed, what does it have to say to us today? Now, the first thing I want to point out and I want to pick up on is God's sovereignty. What exactly is sovereignty? Well, sovereignty is the supreme authority that rules. And as the supreme being, God is and God has the sovereign authority over everything and everyone on the earth. How do we see that as we look at our passage? Well, I think one of the key verses from this little passage is verse 8, which we can actually split into two distinct parts. It starts off with the words, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. And very clearly here, what we're talking about, who we're talking about is Christ. The words first and last are a very clear sign of the sovereignty of God. It's one of the five themes I mentioned earlier about how Revelation is structured. And what's being said here is actually, well, Christ is the first. He's the most important. He comes before anybody. He comes before anything. We've already heard this morning during worship some some words that are drawing that truth out, that God comes first. He comes before wealth, prosperity. He comes before anything else that was going on in Smyrna at the time. And remember, they're a city that was full of wealth and prosperity. They considered themselves the first, the most important city of Asia. Yet these words are challenging to their thinking because they're saying, no, it's not your wealth, it's not your prosperity, it is Christ that comes first. And if indeed Christ comes first, is there adjustments that we need to make? Is there adjustments that the Smyrnans needed to make in the way that they approach day-to-day living? Is Christ really first? Does Christ really come at the top of a list of priorities? And humanly speaking, it's very difficult to consider something as being the first and the last. It's it's very confusing to say, how can something be first and something be last? Well, if you think of it like this, there's a judge in a courtroom who he will start off presiding a case, he sums it up. He starts off with the words, okay, this defendant is here. This defendant is here for this reason. This is what the jury are here to consider. And he sums up the case. He outlines the charges over the defendant. Yet he also pronounces the sentence at the end of the case. He also has the last word. So when we look at it like that, the first and the last words, although it's very, very difficult to understand the grasp of being the first and the last, it's something that's really important for us to remember because 
This is exactly what Christ does for us. He challenges our perceptions. He challenges our thinking. And there's perspective. We need to remember that as Christians, we don't see things through the worldly eyes and through the worldly lens. And the church in Smyrna were being reminded amongst the culture that they lived in, they lived in a culture where they thought that they were the most important city of Asia. They thought they were the first. The fact is that it's not where you're at. It's not who you are. The first and the most important is Christ. It's not about your wealth. It's not about your prosperity. It's not about your success as the world views it. But it's about God and his sovereignty. It's about putting Christ first. Jesus is the starting point. We see at the very start of Scripture, Genesis 1:26 says, "Then God said, "Let us make man in our image." Here, this is alluding to, to Christ's presence in the Trinity. It's alluding to the Godhead. But it's not only about being the first, because we all know that Christ has the last word. He is going to come again in his glory. And he is going to judge. There is nothing that is going to come after Christ. He will be the last. He should be the first and he should be the most important in our lives from day by day. And hand on heart, I can say there are days I go for and there are days I go through and I think about, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do the other. And I start to put Christ backwards. And that's not how I should live my day, I know that. We need to make sure that he comes to the forefront of everything we do. The continued theme of the sovereignty of God, we can see also in verse 8 with the second half of the verse, who died and came to life again. It's used in the greeting of this letter just so it reminds the Smyrnans, it reminds the people, who is it that is speaking to them? It's a demonstration of the authority of Christ. It's a demonstration of where these words are coming from. They carry a lot of clout because they are coming from the sovereign God. If again we revisit our judge, when he's presiding over his case, his words carry authority because his decision is final. He receives that authority, however, from the courts that employ him. Yet Christ receives the authority from his Father. The words that he speaks here to us, here to the church, are coming from the one who has the power over death itself. Do we remember that fact when he speaks to us? Do we really remember when Christ speaks both as a church 
to us as a church and to us as an individual that this is coming from the one who conquered the grave, who conquered death itself. Is it perhaps our failure to continually recognise this core principle that we see here in verse 8, Christ the first and the last and the one who conquers death, that can sometimes get, put the smoke screen up and sometimes get in the way of us seeing a real moving of his power. Perhaps if we could remember this each and every day, it might be easier for us to follow his instructions and to truly see some great and marvellous works and power, answered prayer, healing, revival, We need to remember just who it is who is talking to us. His sovereignty isn't in question. It goes on. It goes on to say, the start of verse 9 starts with two words that should serve as a huge comfort to each and every one of us. I know. He knows everything. There is nothing that we can hide from him. There is nothing that is hidden. This again is his sovereignty. He knows. In the context of this verse to the church in Smyrna, they were suffering tribulation and poverty. And when as Christians we face persecution, things are tough. Money, employment, Even food can be hard to come by. However, the poverty in Smyrna wasn't just economic, and the was just economic. Sorry, and the persecution would have come from both the Jews and from the city. The Jews who persecuted the Christians chose to reject Christ. They claimed to be Jews, but they really were under the control of Satan as the phrase, a synagogue of Satan, points out here. In the latter part of verse 9, it reveals that the ultimate source of all persecution comes from the enemy. It comes from Satan himself. I mean, we just need to look at the story of Job to remind us that when persecution happens, it's not from God, it comes from the enemy. And the Jews that were persecuting the church were rejected by Jesus in very strong terms. He said that they were not true Jews. If we compare Romans 2, 28 and 29, which says, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. It's highlighting that it's all about the inward. It's about the heart. And that is where God looks. He looks at the heart. That is what reveals our true allegiance. And God knows what's in our heart. 
Now, we can see that another illustration of just how much the sovereign God knows as he tells the church in Smyrna not to be afraid of what they're about to suffer. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not really comforting words to me. If God was to turn around and say to me, you are about to undergo suffering, I don't think I'd be very comforted. But we're told here that there is actually a purpose in this suffering. And in context of our passage here, the purpose is to test the church. But what exactly does this mean? When the passage talks of facing persecution, which comes from Satan, with the sole purpose to test the believer's faith. There's also something here that I want to pick up on just briefly, where it says that persecution is going to come, and it talks about a duration of 10 days, and it calls the people of Smyrna to be faithful, even to the point of death. Now, I sometimes think that we can get too caught up in the numbers here. Ten days. Is it a literal ten-day period? You know, I don't think that even matters. Because so often in Scripture, there's timescales that are used just as an illustration point. It may or may not have been a literal ten-day period. I don't think that matters. What I think is important is it highlights that suffering is something that needs to be endured before we can come out of the other side. I think it's important to remember that he is here with us. As it says in Corinthians about he is with us, he will not let us face beyond what we can bear. God is with us and Christ is with us through the suffering. It's highlighting the need for endurance before the other side. If we take the example of a common code, common cold, or man flu, as some of us men consider it, when we've got this, we find life difficult. It, you know, everyday tasks, simple everyday tasks are harder to perform. It's just we're suffering, we've got a cold. Yet the thing is, we know that this is temporary and we know that we're going to come out the other side. It's not going to last forever. It's just a period of time. And we've got hope that we're going to get better. Just as it says here in verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. You are given something. You have the hope of something. And that reward comes from the hands of Christ himself. I will give you life as your victor's crown. When we look at what there is for us as a hope, the hope is 
eternal life with Christ. And that hope comes from Christ. As it says, I will give you life as your victor's crown. It comes from Christ. It is him who is giving the gift to us. When we look at the context as a whole of the letters to seven churches in Revelation, I I notice the pattern seems to follow the, this is good, I like this, but. And that seems to be a pattern in the seven letters. There is always a but. Maybe that this testing spoken about here is the but that we're looking at for Smyrna. There are things to improve. And you know, sometimes we forget that we do actually need a level of testing because that's what confirms where our true allegiance lies and that we truly know. Christ knows us intimately. He knows the faithful and he knows the unfaithful. Perhaps this is is him using that time of testing to draw out those who are truly faithful, those who are truly deserving of the victor's crown. I want to encourage you this morning that a faithful heart of endurance will give us the victor's crown, and I can assure you that is well worth it. The second theme that I want to pick up on is hope. Because we see so far, we see all this talk of affliction and poverty can be disheartening. But what is hope? It's that feeling of expectation, that feeling that there is something yet to come. This amazing phrase in the centre of verse 9 that says, you know, I know your afflictions and your poverty... The phrase, yet you are rich. How exactly can poverty also be rich? Now, I've recently returned from the trip to Malawi. And one of the things that struck me and captured me was during the visit that Andy alluded to earlier, where we went to ordain some local church elders and some leaders. And the conditions that surrounded me, I looked at the village and I thought, wow, that is poverty. When you go and you see a toilet that is just a hole in the ground surrounded by a bamboo screen, you think, they are living in real poverty here. Yet, here is a man, or two men, as you can see, that have no money, or very little money, They can't buy an instrument. Yet, in his poverty, he's found this old oil can, which you can hopefully just about make out from the picture here, some pieces of wood and some strings, to construct his own guitar, which he uses to praise Christ. Now, although the people of Africa may be very poor in material terms in the way that we see things, The one thing I've noticed is the way in which they praise and worship God shows a true richness of faith and joy. Their richness is in their love and their joy and their faith. 
Matthew Henry sums it up well in his commentary of Revelation 2 with these words. Many who are rich as to this world are poor as to the next. And some who are poor outwardly are inwardly rich. Rich in faith, rich in good works, rich in privileges, rich in gifts, and rich in hope. Where there's spiritual plenty, outward poverty may well be born. And when God's people are made poor as to this life, for the sake of Christ and the sake of a good conscience, he makes all up to them in spiritual riches. In essence, as followers of Christ, we've got ultimate eternal riches that far outweigh the earthly view of riches. And that is hope. And we need to remember that hope is not just available when we face persecution and poverty. That is available to us 24-7. And it's available to us about just about anything that we struggle with. Remember, as a follower of Christ, our ultimate goal in life is to live in a way that brings him glory. And talking about hope, the phrase the second death talks of judgment. It gives us a hint about Christ's second return. And it demonstrates to the believers who remain faithful that they have the hope that they're not going to face the second death. Now, verse 11 here talks of the second death. It's not death as we know it. It's much, much worse. The second death is total and eternal separation from God, from his purposes, from his plan, his promises, his love, his presence, his mercy, his grace. Something that I personally think is unimaginable. But the good news is, and the hope is, that as those of us who follow Christ and those of us who know Jesus, we don't have to face that second death. We will spend eternity with Christ. And in that fact, we are amongst the richest in the world because we have a place that he has prepared for us, a place with Christ. And now surely that's something we can't deny as a rich reward. This is the hope that we have as a follower of Christ. And although we might face persecution and we might face poverty, we might face discouragement, we might face our own personal struggles, we can be sure of his purpose, for his purpose is for us. And he has a gift that we have to look forward to. The crown of eternal life. I just want to finish with a, a personal testimony about how God's spoken into my hope and how he's starting to change me. Now, personally, I've always struggled with worry. And I've always hoped that I can get beside this, I can get away with this, and I can stop worrying. 
It's, but it just seems to keep grabbing me. It seems to come back and it seems to trouble me. On my recent trip to Malawi, not having flown anywhere for 10 years, I became a little bit jittery and I was worried about the travelling. Now, prayer and encouragement from the rest of the team and a gentleman came to me on the morning of our flight saying, I have the word jitters. Don't worry, God's with you. That, has, that helped, but it didn't stop me worrying because the flight out there wasn't, wasn't exactly the most calm and tranquil for me. However, God did something amazing this past Monday when we returned. Now, on the morning of our return, I was starting to worry again. I was thinking, oh, what if something happens? What if the plane goes wrong? What if it crashes? And I started to put these things in my head again. But God used a sequence of various events to help break this down and remove that worry. It all started when I picked up my Bible and my Bible reading notes. The prayer at the bottom of the page was about being able to trust God and let go. I then switched on my phone, thinking, oh, I, you know, I'm going to need to ring Emma when I get home for a lift. I'll make sure I've got enough power. Well, you know, and something led me to think, OK, I'll, I'll switch on my app. I wonder what the verse of the day is. And the verse for the day was from Deuteronomy. The Lord goes ahead of you. Again, that's starting to reassure me. These two aspects started to reduce my level of fear and worry. And the next event was sitting in the departure lounge in Malawi. Stewardess comes in and calls three of us forward, myself included. You've been upgraded to fly business class. <laughs> oh, thank you. I've never done that before. That's great. Um, and it's almost like, actually, much bigger. I've got space. I've got leg room. I've got arm room. And I was too caught up in the excitement and... and and the, and the experience of, actually, this is comfortable. But I didn't even start to worry about flying because I was too caught up in the excitement of, of what was happening. And that had a knock-on effect to the flight from Johannesburg back to the UK. I didn't even think about anything. Take-off, flying was, was fine. It was, it, of course, it helped me to fall asleep, having an empty seat next to me, but this is when it could have gone all wrong. Because I, I fell asleep, and then I had this troubling dream. And in the dream, I was on a plane that was falling lower and lower before it eventually landed on a body of water. As you do when you've got a troubling dream, you awake with a startle, and I awoke startled, and... My first reaction was, oh, I need to look, I need to look at the screen. You know, it shows me where we are, altitude and everything. But all of a sudden, I suddenly thought, no, no, God's promised. No. I'm not even going to entertain the lies of the enemy. I choose to trust God. And I choose to trust his promises. And then I just turned over and went back to sleep. And... 
had this happened on the flight going out to Malari, I tell you now, I would have been a mess. Every noise, everything strange that happened, I would have been looking around and panicking. And it would have filled me with dread. But the story doesn't end there. Because since I've been back, the amount of worry in my life has been dramatically reduced. And I'm choosing not to worry. In fact, even Emma, who I would like to think as my wife, next to God, knows me better than anybody, has commented she's noticed how I'm worrying a lot less. And I've always had the hope that God is going to stop me from worrying, yet now he's begun to speak into that hope and he's slowly changing me and it's making a difference. Because he knows he reigns, he is sovereign. Hope is available to you. Now, even if it seems like something very small, he wants to work in your life and he wants to change your life. He wants to help you and encourage you and he wants to give you hope. Because he reigns, We have hope. Amen.